Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Professor Matthew Peel, a professor of history at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Matthew is the author of the new book, The Making of Working Class Religion, published by the University of Illinois Press. Matthew's book focuses on the history of labor in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Why don't we begin today by talking a little bit about you, Matthew. Uh, Where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Well, in the classic uh, It's a Small World story, um, I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is where I live now. Um, I moved away at uh, 18 thinking that I was interested mostly in filmmaking. Um, Went to school for that and realized that I was more interested in uh, academic study than in um, the kind of technical aspect of filmmaking, and um, got more and more interested in history, particularly particularly uh, the labor history of the West, things like the uh, the mine wars in Coeur in Idaho, and things like that around the Progressive Era. Um, so that sort of drew me into uh, history, and I went back to grad school in 2001 to get a master's degree at Utah State University. Um, and while I was there, I served as the uh, editorial fellow at the Western Historical Quarterly, which I believe has now moved to Oklahoma, but was at Utah at the time. And then in beginning in 2003, I went on to get my PhD in American history at Brandeis uh, outside of Boston and finished that up in 2009. And it's from the dissertation research that, uh, that my book came from. You are a South Dakotan, uh, Matthew, and uh, I can't help but thinking about the dissertation written by another South Dakota history PhD, George McGovern, uh, which focused on the Ludlow strike in Colorado, right. which he wrote under Ray Allen Billington in the 1940s. Yep, that's right, on the Cold Wars. Have you ever uh, taken a look back at that book and see how it holds up over time? You know, I have a copy of it on my shelf, but I, I, I ha- can't say that I've read it recently. Um, I've just kind of paged through it, but that would be an interesting exercise. I wonder what drew George McGovern to the story of the Ludlow Massacre, as it was called. I suppose it was his close connection to Ray Allen Billington at Northwestern, I would guess he was the one who turned him on to that topic. But what turned you on to the topic of mining and the story of labor relations in the West? Well, I think I got interested through a book that came out in the late 90s called Big Trouble by J. Anthony Lucas, who really kind of made his name as a reporter and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book on the Boston Busing Crisis, which I didn't know about at the time. I was just kind of intrigued by this book that came out, and it wasn't the kind of thing that I normally read. It was a very large book. It was, it's like a thousand pages or something. Right. And I believe the story is kind of like tragically, um, Lucas was plagued by depression, and as he finished the book, he, he felt like he hadn't done it justice, and he wound up committing suicide shortly after finishing the book, which is, 
amazing when you look at, you know, a thousand page meticulously researched volume. I think he did everything that he could have done. Um, But uh, so the story revolved around the assassination of Frank Stunenberg, who was the ex-governor of Idaho, who had intervened in a labor dispute earlier. And after he had left the governor's mansion, he was coming home uh, from from Christmas, some Christmas celebration, and opened his front gates to go up to his house, and it triggered a bomb, and he was blown up on his front yard. And this just really captured my attention, I think largely because, um, I think largely because conflict is not something that is really addressed generally when we talk about American history. With the exception of the Civil War, I think our understanding of American history is very much one of maybe contestation within very defined public limits. And this struck me as something that it was kind of shocking for me, probably naively looking back on it, but it was shocking to me the level of the, the openness of the violence. The fact that there was essentially an on-running open war um, that it mystified me why I didn't know anything about it and, and just really intrigued me. So that's really why I, how I, why and how I started to think about labor because it seems like it was the story that was kind of underneath the main story. And so I wanted to explore that. Anthony Lucas uh, and his suicide remind me of an earlier podcast uh, that we broadcast about a month ago where I talked to Ross Lockridge Jr., about his father, the famous Indiana novelist who wrote wrote this thousand-page novel that came out in 1948 and went to number one on the bestseller lists and was immediately picked up by MGM for a movie, and he won a million-dollar prize, and he immediately committed suicide uh, yeah. in the midst of all that success. It just uh, had been such an overwhelming process. Yeah. Um, just so... I'm reminded of this history. Who who was it that planted the bomb that killed Governor Studenberg? Well, the people that were arrested were uh, members of the Wobblies, the IWW. Big Bill Haywood was arrested along with, I can't remember, Charles Moyer, I think, was another Wobbly. There was one other guy. And it was a sensational story because they were actually in Colorado at the time. And the, uh, the state of Idaho essentially had to conspire to kidnap them and uh, put them on an overnight train so that, that, that nobody would notice that they were gone from Colorado until the next day so that they couldn't be brought back. And William Bora, who, became, who becomes an influential senator in the prosecution, and Clarence Darrow, who had, uh, would go on to the Scopes Monkey trial fame, he comes in as the defense, and the jury opened up acquitting the Wobblies. They don't get convicted of the crime. Um, the speculation was that um, a series of conspirators, that it was a, a Wobbly, someone within the, this uh, organization that later went on to bomb the Los Angeles Times newspaper building, is probably the person who did it, but it's not, it's not fully resolved, as I understand. Hmm. Uh, to bring it back to the Midwest a little bit in, in terms of this era, I'm reminded of this book 
that came out a few years ago about the Haymarket affair. And we've both uh, taught the American History Survey many times and uh, given a short uh, description of what happened at Haymarket. But there was a labor historian a few years ago who kind of rewrote the history of the Haymarket affair. Are you familiar with that? that Yeah, James Green, I think. This was uh, Death in the Haymarket, I believe was the name. And do you think that that has had an impact on labor history? Has it has it changed the interpretation of that event? I don't know. I, you know, I think the purpose of that book was to create a narrative that would be appealing to a broader public. I, I think that one of the things that that Jim Green was really interested in was the uh, the way that we remember or forget episodes in labor history in the broader American culture. And I think that he thought that Haymarket had long been kind of mismemorialized or just forgotten outright. And so I think he wanted mostly to tell a compelling story that would draw people in kind of the way that Big Trouble did for me, just to kind of introduce people who wouldn't normally know anything about it to the story. I don't know if it's really transformed historiography around Haymarket. Um, I think it's more than anything in the line of literature that is concerned with memorialization and memory. Um, I think that's probably where it's had its impact in the historiography, but I don't know that it's fundamentally, I guess I'm not a, primarily a Haymarket historian, but I don't know, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily changed the interpretation of the event. I think it's just given it a bigger profile. You are listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. We are visiting today with Augustana University professor Matthew Peel, and we are talking about uh, American labor history and some of its connections to the American Midwest. And in particular, uh, we are about to begin a discussion of Matthew's new book entitled The Making of Working Class Religion, which is published by University of Illinois Press and is an assessment of labor history in Detroit, Michigan. So Matthew, tell us about how you came to the topic of labor history in Detroit and its connections to religion. So the way I got to Detroit was, I I think, a a sound way for any scholar. I think any scholar could be proud of saying, I found it through a footnote. (laughs) So that's that's how I came up on Detroit. What I knew I wanted to do, I knew that I was interested in the intersection between religion and, if not necessarily the labor movement per se, um, religion and issues of, I guess I would kind of call it economic justice or maybe even economic morality, just the way in which um, religion might have shaped the way that working people thought about their lives. But that was really kind of what I was interested in. Um, So it was less that I was drawn to the labor movement per se, it was more that I wanted to find a place where I could hopefully find some sources of ordinary working class people processing their lives through the medium of whatever religion they practice. So that was kind of a broad, generic idea. And as I was reading what at the time was a pretty thin historiography, and is now what I'm happy to say has grown quite a bit better and thicker, um, but at the time it was fairly thin. 
and I was reading about um, some of the activities of the so-called labor priests of the 1930s. These were a generation of priests who, confronting the Great Depression and confronting the challenges posed to many working-class Catholics, um, became more and more involved in the public sphere and particularly kind of saw themselves as both defenders of the working class and also mediators. In fact, a lot of them wound up literally being federal mediators in labor disputes. Um, And so I was reading about them, and there was a footnote in one of these articles that sort of mentioned offhand that uh, various of these labor priests had founded schools, so-called labor schools. These were parish-level schools where working lady, the working class lady, would go and be instructed in essentially the papal teachings about socialism, unionism, economic democracy, this type of stuff. Um, and part of that would also include parliamentary training so that uh, these lay Catholics could go and join their unions and become active union members, but also take a leadership role in it. Part of this was to achieve a kind of economic security, and part of it was to counter communists who might be in the unions. So there was this footnote that um, among these labor schools, um, Detroit was a hotbed for these labor schools. It actually had the, the most labor schools of any city in the country, and that the, um, the priests who ran the labor schools had given surveys to their students, and that these, that these student surveys were preserved the collection of one of these labor priests in Detroit. And that's when I started to think about Detroit, because thinking that there might be an actual source in which the the lay member himself is describing what the religion means, I thought, okay, that's the hardest thing, but that's going to be the thing that's hardest to find. So if that exists, I'm going to start there. And once I started to think about that, a whole lot of other things started to click into place. For instance, the fact that Detroit was at the center of the labor movement at the time, that the United Auto Workers was probably the most important industrial union of its era, except for maybe the steel workers or the electrical workers. Um, And then the fact that Detroit had a really interesting religious demography, that this is a place that had essentially gone from, in the late 19th century, a very sort of Anglo-Protestant city to between about the 20s and the 50s, a very, very Catholic city, to from the 50s onward to essentially a Southern city and specifically a Southern African-American city. So the way that I started to recognize this is that what what was really going on in Detroit was that it was at the intersection of two sort of mass movements of people. and both of these mass movements were tied to specific movements of religious ideas and religious institutions, one from Catholic Europe and the other from the American South. And they both kind of converge at roughly the same time in this industrial center. So once I had that as a picture, I thought, okay, that's an interesting story. And through great good fortune, um, there were a lot of sources once I started digging. Prior to the 1920s and this big transition that you have discussed, what was the relationship between religion and labor? Um, Was there a Protestant 
Anglo effort, maybe related to the social gospel movement and Walter Rauschenbusch and this and this cadre of people. Was there an active group there? And I'm thinking of people like Eugene Debs from Indiana. I mean, where did he get his ideas from? Were there any religious inspirations there, or was it primarily from Marxism and other other forms of inspiration? Oh, no, not for Debs, certainly not. I mean, uh, you know, the major biographer of Debs is uh, Nick Salvatore, and Salvatore certainly argues that Debs was deeply influenced by Christianity. Um, there's another recent, a book that's been published recently called The Radical Historical Jesus that talks about um, the origin of, during the progressive era, a number of theologians that sort of identify themselves as Christian socialists tried to reconnect with what they considered to be the authentic historical Jesus, and they saw this authentic historical Jesus was essentially a kind of practicing radical. Um, for them, this wasn't, this was radical, it was kind of socialist, but it really didn't have anything to do with Marxism. Their understanding of it was that this was a kind of primitive Christianity. You can find the links within Protestantism. Historians have traced this well back to the 1820s, if not if not earlier. Um, from the very beginning of the factory system, industrial system, there have been a, a couple of really good studies that look at the development of a sort of Bible-centered Protestant critique of unmitigated wealth, of unmitigated self-seeking, um, a lot of this sort of early language around the eight-hour movement, which was really kind of the first movement that brought a lot of workers together, the argument that there should be an eight-hour workday. Much of the rhetoric for the eight-hour workday was built around uh, biblical defenses of times for rest, and part of that argument also said we can't, imp- we can't imp- seek self-improvement, including moral improvement. We won't have time to develop our spiritual and moral capacities as human beings if we're working 12-hour workdays for low pay. So it's actually a moral and biblical imperative that we have time for self-improvement, therefore we need eight-hour laws. Um, and that was really kind of the dominant political labor issue of the late 19th century. So, yeah, you can find traces of this um, throughout, although you wouldn't really say that labor and, or that, excuse me, that religion and the labor movement were necessarily close. They seem to have been really at, at, at odds, particularly throughout the early 20th century. There's lots of correspondence where the American Federation of Labor, which was the big labor organization at the time, tried to form alliances with various churches, mostly Protestant churches, but also Catholic churches and Jewish synagogues to some extent, but it's it, really neither of them really trusted the other, from what I can tell. The AFL would, very, it didn't take much for the AFL to say, oh, geez, it turns out that these uh, labor people who should be on our side are really just a bunch of self-satisfied hypocrites practicing what they called churchianity meaning it's very institutional centered but it has nothing in the spirit of the religion whereas um, many of the religious leaders in this at the time would be mostly sort of mainline Protestant leaders these were well educated middle class people mostly didn't have a lot of experience that would have lined up with a lot of the 
the people in the unions and worried that there were radical influences that they didn't trust, that there were foreign influences that they didn't trust, that there were kind of secular influences that they didn't trust. So the relationship is long, but it's also really complicated. So returning to Detroit in the uh, 20s and 30s and up to World War II, how did uh, workers there interpret the labor situation via Catholicism and via the schools created by these priests? So this is kind of the crux of the argument that I make, that it's really during the 19th, by the end of the 1930s and early 1940s is to me like the, 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 the key window in which we see both immigrant Catholics, African-American migrants who have been coming to Detroit since World War One, and make up a really significant part of the city and of the workforce and have built a vibrant church community and Southern white evangelicals. So we've got these three communities, um, Catholics, Southern blacks, and Southern whites, all of them deeply linked to their re- religious institutions and religious identities, all of them sort of for their populations disproportionately represented in the working class, and all of them kind of simultaneously confronted the question, are we going to join the UAW? Are we going to join the CIO? What will the labor movement do for us? And their religious leaders also then having to really directly confront the question, do we really want to um, condemn the, the labor movement? If, if we condemn the labor movement in the midst of the Great Depression, um, will our members leave us? Will they listen to us? Um, there were various social justice issue questions that they had to ask. And so what you see coming together, I think really quickly, between about 36 to 38, is the majority of at least the leading voices in all three of these communities um, tend to create, they, they create a language of religious practice, of religious identity, even in, in, some, in some cases, religious worship, in which the liturgy itself takes elements of working class issues, working class identities, the notion of St. Joseph the workman, or Jesus the carpenter's son, or the hewers of wood and the drawers of water, this kind of biblical reference to working people, and make it an explicit part of the liturgy as a way of sort of taking working class identity and reinterpreting it through this sort of sacred lens, which the workers then respond to and then take into the labor movement. So you have this sort of transformation of identity in which workers understand it of themselves both as religious people and as people of a particular class kind of merge and reinforce each other in which they can think of themselves as working class Catholics or working class evangelicals and those identities are reinforcing rather than antagonistic. You mentioned the uh, activities of the Communist Party in Detroit, and they were obviously active in the 20s and 30s. I suppose that was their most active period of time. What was the relationship between the uh, communist organizers and the Catholics? Um, Of course, the communist organizers were known to be quite hostile to religion and and in yeah. times saw religion as a barrier to 
the kind of worker consciousness they needed to organize these movements. Again, it's different for each group. The largest group are the Catholics, and the communists and the Catholics despise each other. I mean, there's just no good. Each one of them sees the other as essentially an existential threat. And the Catholics that are in the labor movement, they're, they're not just there because of communism. I think that the evidence is very, the evidence that I saw was very strong that they really care about the labor movement. They really see themselves as building, as wanting to build a legitimate democratic labor movement, but they will brook no accommodation with communism. And the response of many of the communists is to attach Catholicism to what, it, to what was going on in Europe, particularly in Italy and Spain, which were kind of the two most identifiably Catholic countries in Europe, both of which ruled by fascist demagogues. So the communists would turn around and say, well, these, these Catholics are just taking orders from their fascistic overlords. So when the Catholics get involved in the labor movement, it's part of a, 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 a plot to spread fascism through America. And when the Catholics talk, they talk about the, the, the fear of communism taking over. So they each sort of have a category that they can put the other in and argue around. What's interesting is that a lot of the workers who were pretty far leftists, but not communists, uh, socialists, people like Walter Ruther, um, other people in the education department of the union, these are definitely leftists and pretty secular people, but they tend to be much more willing to listen to the Catholics than the communists and actually really kind of appreciate what the Catholic labor schools are doing. So the alliances that you start to see are alliances between communists, or excuse me, between Catholics and leftists slash socialists. And that is the block that really kind of uh, prevents the growth of communism more than it was within the UAW. Because there were leaders that were affiliated with or active communists. Probably the reason that they didn't become more influential in the union was because of this alliance that develops between the non-communist leftists and the Catholics. You mentioned Spain, and I was curious to know how conscious all of these people were in Detroit in the 1930s of what was happening in Spain and all the friction between the communists and the Catholics there and the reprisals back and forth between Franco's forces and the communists, etc., which much of which centered around the Catholic Church and which side it was on and who was being supported by the Catholics. I can't, you know, there are traces of it. The traces that I saw were in both the official Catholic diocesan paper, talked about it, worried about, you know, the communist uh, uh, influence in Spain. But the general tone in the Catholic Archdiocese newspaper, as the Depression wore on, it, they didn't really see, uh, they, they certainly didn't see a conflict between a democratic American labor movement and opposing communism in Spain. Like to them, this was part and parcel of the same thing. So they they knew that they didn't want communism in the American labor movement, but that didn't mean that they wrote off the American labor movement because they were communists in it. That actually probably would have been a disastrous choice had they made it. I think they were wise to, to see that the, the, the way forward was to actually get keep their own people in the movement 
and uh, to get them sort of knowing how to operate parliamentary debates and things like that, because that's what the communists were really, really good at, were sort of dominating the parliamentary procedures of the unions. Um, in the UAW newspaper, you see passing references to Spain. I, they definitely knew the broad outlines of what was going on. I, I can't say much deeper what was going on in their in their individual heads, mm-hmm. but there was definitely an awareness of Spain as being kind of a harbinger of a potential brooding conflict between fascism, communism, Catholicism, and democracy. How would you describe, Matthew, the Catholic population of Detroit? Um, I guess the main immigrant groups would be Italian, Irish, German. But what was the mix? And was there any pocket or Polish workers, too, I would guess? What was the mix? And was there a, a group that tended to be more labor-oriented than others? Or were they all about the same? Yeah, it's tough to tell exactly. In terms of the demographic, Detroit was extremely diverse. Um, One source that I saw, I think something like 32 different languages were spoken within Detroit Catholic communities in the early 1920s. Um, But by far the largest were Poles. Uh, In fact, Detroit in the 1920s was the fifth largest Polish city in the world. Okay, so number one is Warsaw. Number two is Chicago. Then there are two more Polish cities, and then Detroit. Interesting. It's a very, very Polish Catholic city. The Irish have kind of faded. The Irish are basically a minority in the Catholic community. It's the Poles, and then coming in fairly distant second, Italians, Czechs, Slovaks, um, some Ukrainians. Um, but it's it's a, it's a Central and Eastern European Catholic community. But interestingly, the church itself is still there. The names that you see as like the priests and the archbishops, they're all Irish names. Um, so the most prominent labor priest in Detroit is a guy named Father Raymond Clancy. Okay, Father Raymond Clancy is the person who's called upon to denounce Father Charles Coughlin, who's another, I'm sure readers will, or listeners will We'll know a little bit about Charles Coughlin because he's probably the most famous Catholic priest of the era. Um, these are both Irish descended priests, um, and you so you can kind of see like in the, the the leadership of these Catholic groups, there's a legacy of more probably longer Americanized Irish Catholic leadership. But I don't think that this would would have worked without a significant buy-in from the Central European Catholics, particularly the Poles. And they're definitely publishing newspapers in in Polish and Italian, Catholic labor newspapers in Polish and Italian. How did Father Coughlin figure into this whole story? I, for some reason, associated him more with the suburbs of Detroit than with the core of Detroit in these working class areas that you're talking about, but that may be completely wrong. What what was his relationship to the labor movement there? Um, complicated. <laughs> that's, that's what historians like to say, right? It's complicated. <laughs> his church was indeed on the outskirts of Detroit. Royal Oak is a suburb northeast of the city center, but 
he's operating within the Detroit Archdiocese, and his main support through the through the early 30s is his bishop that is in Detroit. And the reason that Coughlin can say pretty much anything is because he was so closely supported by the bishop. The, the bishop dies, and a new bishop comes in in 1937, and the new archbishop um, is a lot less impressed with Coughlin than the old one. So the reason that Coughlin starts to sort of lose official favor by about 1939 is because the hierarchy, the hierarchy has changed. Um, and, you know, he becomes more extreme, but he probably could have gotten away with it with this earlier bishop. At first, uh, the UAW is hopeful that Coughlin will be an ally. And at first, it looks like Coughlin will be an ally. He goes and he speaks at the UAW's founding convention in South Bend, Indiana. He uh, says very positive things about the idea of organized workers. Um, he, of course, castigates monopolies and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but within a couple of years, Coughlin is, he becomes really focused on two issues above all, all else. One is communism and the other is anti-Semitism. So he starts saying very anti-Semitic things and very sort of red-baiting things. Um, and it becomes clear that the key, he, there's no way that, that the UAW can maintain an alliance with Coughlin. But Coughlin is um, tricky because he's basically founded his own sort of independent union in the large Dodge Workers plant. The Dodge Workers, the local, it becomes the UAW Dodge Local Number 3, but at the time, it's about a 10,000 member independent union of almost all Polish Catholic workers that are loyal to Coughlin. So Coughlin presents a real sort of tricky issue because the union doesn't, cannot afford to alienate Catholics because it needs, because it's a working class Catholic industry. So it needs working class Catholics to join if it's gonna be viable. Um, so it needs the support of as many Catholics as it can get. Coughlin as kind of the most prominent Catholic who has veered into territory that the union cannot brook, and is basically kind of holding this independent union as his own little fiefdom, he presents a real challenge. Um, and what really just sort of turns the tide is that it's the Catholic hierarchy itself in Detroit that decides it's, it's going to favor the CIO and the UAW, and it's going to reject Coughlin. Another major figure at this time connected to Detroit, at least for a few years, was Reinhold Niebuhr. And I'm wondering uh, how, since we're in Lutheran country, um, I'm wondering how uh, he looked at all these events taking place uh, in the Catholic parishes and among the labor unions. Uh, what did he have to say about this, if anything? He did have something to say. I don't know what he thought about what was going on in the Catholic parishes. I don't think he had a lot of connection to what was going on in Catholic Detroit. And Niebuhr is pretty much gone by the end of the 20s. I think, I can't remember exactly when he moves to New York, but it's early 30s, late 20s. So he's not there at the moment where I think where this transformation occurs that I described, this late 1930s era transformation. Niebuhr's already gone. But when he was in Detroit in the 20s, um, he essentially became the first uh, clergy person to denounce Henry Ford. Um, and he does this in the pages of the Christian Century, which was kind of the large 
uh, newspaper, the mouthpiece of sort of official mainland Protestantism. And he denounces the labor practices at Ford. He denounces Ford um, as being essentially kind of a simple-minded and, and, and delusional person who thinks that you can just order something to be so and it will be so. Um, and this is very controversial in, in the country and certainly in Detroit. The Protestant churches in Detroit in the 20s seemed to want nothing to do with the labor movement as it exists there. Huh. Um, it, time and time again, there, there's, there's an on-running debate that goes on for years and years in the local uh, Council of Churches, the Detroit Council of Churches, which is essentially the, the corporate body in which Protestant churches um, organize try, try to get a unified voice. And they go back for years and years and years. They form a, 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 a division of industrial relations to basically study relationships between workers and, uh, and owners. But that's basically all they do. They have a couple of reports and they talk for years and years and years about whether or not they're going to actually invite a labor representative to actually speak to them. And they keep putting it off because it would just be too controversial. So they don't even want to bring in a labor speaker, much less form any sort of alliance. Niebuhr is the major outlier, uh, not because he doesn't actually form alliances with the unions, but he's the only one that really sort of articulates that there is a that there is an actual labor problem, that the churches need to deal with it, and that um, the churches were far too complicit in kind of the, the the industrial order that Ford had created. Matthew, I also wanted to ask you about your upcoming projects, which involves some attention to some Midwestern cities and the history of police departments in these cities. Yeah, I don't know exactly where this is going to go yet, but I have hopes of presenting um, some papers at the uh, the upcoming AHA and OAA, the uh, American Historical Association and Organization of American Historians. Um, I have plans to be on panels, assuming that they're approved at both of these conferences. And what I plan on talking about is the role of Catholicism in uh, urban police departments in what we might call the long 1970s, basically the late 60s through the 70s. Of course, this is a time of huge social change. It's a time when urban police departments in cities like Chicago and Milwaukee and Detroit and Cleveland are under are experiencing a great amount of change and a great amount of scrutiny and pressure. Um, there's a lot of tension in these urban communities between police departments and minority communities. Um, and it's also a time in which the whole composition of the police department itself is starting to change um, because of equal employment opportunity laws, uh, affirmative action decrees. It's becoming a more professionalized and more diverse profession. And it's also becoming a profession that is becoming aware of the burgeoning public sector union movement. So there is a lot that's going on at this time. And what I'm interested in, one of the things that I'm interested in is the kind of stereotype of the Irish Catholic cop that is at the center of all this and of starting to sort of peel back that stereotype and see what's, again, it's kind of the same question that I had with these workers in Detroit how do they understand their religion and use that understanding to live their lives as working people 
that's kind of what I want to understand here too. Um, how did it, being immersed in an urban Catholic culture condition the thinking and the experience and the sort of the moral worldview of these officers? And then how did that encounter this changing urban environment that, uh, that was taking place in so many of these cities? So I will definitely be looking at Chicago um, and likely Milwaukee and Detroit, as well as some, uh, some East Coast cities. We have been visiting today with Matthew Peel, a professor of history at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Matthew is the author of the new book, The Making of Working Class Religion, about the labor history of Detroit. It is published by the University of Illinois Press. This is Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew. Great. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.